I don't know how many of you remember this. I would venture a good number of you. It wasn't that long ago. But back in the day when we actually had printed newspapers that everybody laid their hands on, it was kind of a, an exciting thing, whether it was in the morning or the evening, to grab hold of that paper, open it up, and start reading. Now, in a place like Libby, when we would get the newspaper, you could read every word and be done in about 20 minutes if it took you that long. In Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up, you got the newspaper every day, and it was thick, and you couldn't read the whole thing. And as a kid, I never had much of a desire to, but as I got a little older, I'd watch Dad read the newspaper forever, so I thought that's what men were supposed to do. You read the newspaper. So I grabbed it, and I would start scanning for headlines that would catch my attention. Well, we don't do that that much anymore because we don't have the printed newspapers. We instead have things online, which means we scroll looking for headlines that will catch our attention. Some people will read every story they come across, but not many because most folks don't have that kind of time. So you look for the headlines, headlines that will capture your attention. Well, I was scrolling this last week looking for headlines that would capture my attention, not in newspapers that were like today's, but in recent news articles. And I found exactly what I was looking for with this headline. Take a look. True tales of people coming back to life during funerals and in mortuaries after being declared dead. That's exactly what I was looking for. And the headline did what it was supposed to. It captured my attention. So I started reading, and that's where I found this. Consider the example of Mr. Walter Williams. On February 26, 2014, in the state of Mississippi, Holmes County Coroner Dexter Howard was called to the hospice that had become the final home of 78-year-old Mr. Williams. Having checked for a pulse and found none, the coroner declared Mr. Williams dead. He completed his paperwork and transported Mr. Williams inside a body bag to the embalming room of Porter and Son's funeral home in Lexington. But before the embalming process could begin, the body bag started moving. We noticed his legs beginning to move like kicking, Mr. Howard said. He also began to do a little breathing. Mr. Williams was alive and literally kicking. The astonished coroner could think of only one rational explanation— Perhaps a defibrillator implant previously placed beneath the skin of Mr. Williams' chest had jump-started his heart after he was placed in the body bag. But the bottom line, Mr. Howard insisted, is it's a miracle. Well, I read that, and of course I had all kinds of things running through my mind, one of which is, do I know anybody that has ever experienced anything like this? And that, of course, led me to making a phone call to my good friend Steve Snockenberg, because if there is anybody that I know that might have experienced details like this, it would be Steve. I called Steve, and I asked him if he had ever experienced something similar, and he said, "Uh, that I'm aware of. So that was a little disconcerting in and of itself, because if he wasn't aware of it, I hope he didn't miss something. And then I said, Steve, as the coroner all these years, what is your criteria for declaring someone dead? And he ran through a list of things very quickly that he would consider the criteria for declaring that in a person's well, I would say life, but really more their death. And that had my imagination going all kinds of different places. And that's when I found my way 
to a movie clip that I sent out on Friday. If you happen to get our end of the week letter, you've already seen this clip, but it's so good I wanted to show it to you again because it captures the whole idea of what we're talking about. It comes from the movie from the 1980s titled The Princess Bride. Take a look. I'll ask him. His daddy can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. That was funny in 1987. It is still funny. That is still funny. So you can see kind of the path that I was on from scrolling headlines to looking up movie clips from the 1980s and all of that had a point. I have been spending time in one of the miracles of Jesus that happens within the realm of the all dead. Not the mostly dead, the all dead. And it is quite dramatic. I want you to see it this morning. I'm guessing a number of you have studied this passage, uh, well, really just a lot of times. But I want us to come at it from a different perspective this morning, looking for some things that we may have never seen within the account as it is laid out in Scripture. Join me in John chapter 11. This is the last public miracle of Jesus recorded by John, It is the last of the seven he records and arguably the last of his public miracles before the cross. John chapter 11, verse 1, we know this as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That last verse, verse 4, sets the stage not only for this miracle, but for the miracle of the resurrection. What Jesus would do when he came out of the grave, obviously giving life back to himself, but also to us. So look again at what he says in verse 4. If you're reading a red letter edition of the Bible, this is red. These are the words of Jesus. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Remember, those words set the stage for everything else that we are about to see. Let's move on to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
Now, there is a lot of teaching going on here, a lot of teaching. Back in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, there's a, a curiosity that has to rise off the page for you. If Jesus loved Lazarus, why did he stay where he was at when he heard that he was sick? Why didn't he hurry right to him? Well, the answer is quite simple, and make no mistake about it. Jesus never intended to heal a sick man with this miracle. He intended to raise a dead man. So he stayed right where he was at. That was the reason. That was the purpose, that his glory would be revealed and that God would be glorified through the entire miracle. It was a much larger perspective than what Mary and Martha had. They just wanted Jesus to get to them and help their brother. But once we get past that surface type of teaching, there is a lot more going on with this. Did you catch that they had to send word to him where he was at? Now that begs its own question. Where was he? I'm glad that you asked. In order to answer it, we have to go back one chapter to John chapter 10. Let's do that. John chapter 10, verse 22. Again, I love how this gets started. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple of the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Oh, Jesus is about to tell them plainly. And in John chapter 11, he's going to show them so that they cannot miss that he is the Christ. First, though, he'll lay it out for them in no uncertain terms. He's going to tell them the answer to their question, and they will not be able to miss it. Pick up with me in verse 25, you'll see it. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, or you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now pay close attention to what happens in verse 31. Here we go. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus just answered their question, and they want to kill him. So they picked up stones to hurl the stones at him until he was dead, because he answered their question. That's all he did. He answered their question. I love his response to them in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I've done a lot of good things. What are you going to kill me for? Which one of them? Let's make a list. That's really what Jesus was saying. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And here Jesus shows them once again that he's the smartest one in the room. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, I love the progression of that. Right after he answered their question the first time, they sought to kill him. But he got out of that trap, lays everything out for him, makes it very personal, and now they decide to arrest him. Do you see the progression? We were going to kill you and then try you. But because you're smarter than we are, now we want to arrest you and then try you and then kill you. We'll do it the right way. That's really what was happening. So they were so emotional at first based on his response that they wanted to stone him. When they calmed down just a little bit, got their head around him, they thought, we better follow the right channels or we're in trouble. What they did not factor in was who Jesus was. Here it is again, verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. When Mary and Martha sent word to him where he was at, he was on the move after they had tried to kill him and then arrest him. Jesus was on the move. And the Bible makes it pretty plain where he went when he left Bethany. But my friends, this is one of those times that the Bible, at the, or the Bible, the map at the back of your Bible comes into play. If you have ever wondered why those are in the back of your Bible, if you happen to have a study Bible, it's for passages just like this. Because you need some biblical geography in order to make this thing make sense. And once you see it, hopefully lights will just go off in your mind and you'll go, oh, this is all starting to make sense to me now. And it all hangs on that they sent word to him where he was at. So let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to project a map up on the screen. Right in the middle of that map with an empty circle, you'll see the city of Jerusalem. I want to give you just a second to find it. Everybody dial in so that you see the city of Jerusalem. If you've got it, raise your hand. All right, people have found Jerusalem right in the middle. If you haven't found it, go to the Dead Sea, head left. You're going to run right into it. The top end of the Dead Sea, you'll run right into Jerusalem. Now let's work our way back to the right. You'll find the city of Bethany. Everybody see Bethany right to the right of Jerusalem? That's about a mile and a half away. According to the scale and what we know, that is a mile and a half away. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany, a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. That's where Lazarus was at when he got sick. Now in John chapter 10, when Jesus and the disciples escaped the hands of the Pharisees, it said they went to the area where John the Baptist had been baptizing. So let's keep going to the right and you will see the city or the region of Qumran. That's where John the Baptist hung out most of the time. When he was baptizing people, he would make his way around the top end of the Dead Sea to the Jordan River. He wasn't baptizing people in the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea was full of salt. 
nasty body of water and pretty difficult to baptize somebody in. We have been in the Dead Sea. You cannot sink in the Dead Sea. You can literally sit down in the Dead Sea like you're sitting in a lawn chair and just float there with nothing underneath you. If you're a person like Dini who swims like a rock, the Dead Sea is a gift to you because you cannot sink. So baptizing people in the Dead Sea, not a real option. And the fresh water was going to be a lot nicer. So John would go up towards Bethany beyond the Jordan and he would baptize people there. So when Jesus and the disciples escaped, they went to Qumran and they were hanging out there. Now, this is why that is so significant. It isn't just because John the Baptist was there. Geographically, it is significant because Qumran is full of caves. Everywhere you look, there are caves. There are sheer cliffs with caves in them. There are approaches to caves. There are caves everywhere. And they are such a good hiding place that certain biblical artifacts hid there for nearly 2,000 years. Anybody know what was found back in the late 1920s and 30s in the region of Qumran in a cave when a little shepherd boy who was chasing goats chunked a rock into a cave and it hit a pottery vessel and all of a sudden the world was turned upside down with a biblical artifact? That was the Dead Sea Scrolls. For almost 2,000 years, they were hidden in the caves of Qumran. If you were going to escape the hands of the Pharisees and the Roman soldiers and go to a place where you would be safe, Qumran was safe. No question about it. So when they got there, the disciples had to be thinking, unless they have got a pack of bloodhounds that can climb rock, we're in good shape here. We are going to be okay. Scholars, however, believe that Jesus, between John chapter 10 and John chapter 11, moved south. So he went south of Jerusalem, down into the region of Hebron or Beersheba. He was about 20 miles away when he got word that Lazarus was sick, and he was 20 miles to the south. Now, this is why that's so interesting. The Egyptian border was right below him. They had been in this place where they could hide, and Jesus had led them south into a place where escape was very difficult, not to mention hiding in and of itself. If we have to get out of here, we have to go south. And if we can't go south, we've got to head right over towards the Mediterranean. And you can see from Hebron to the Mediterranean, there isn't much between those two places. We're fully exposed. Now, if you were looking at the whole map, it would cause you to wonder, why didn't Jesus go to the north? Why didn't he head towards Nazareth, a place that he was familiar with? Why didn't he go towards the Sea of Galilee? Why didn't he get up into all that agricultural land where he could hide? Or why didn't he just stay where he was at? Because he was God, and he was teaching the disciples something. So he went south, about 20 miles, and then he gets word that Lazarus is sick in Bethany, a mile and a half from Jerusalem. Now that you understand that, the reaction of the apostles will make more sense to you. Pick up with me in John chapter 11. We'll start again in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you 
are you going to go there again? What in the world? They were with him when he escaped from Bethany and Jerusalem the last time. And now the disciples are saying, (laughs) sorry about that. We are 20 miles away. We are more than a day and a bit from being there. But you want us to go to Bethany? Bethany is only, here's a test for you, how far from Jerusalem? A mile and a half. You want us to go back to Jerusalem? They were trying to kill you there. And if they hear that we're in Bethany and they're going to, Lord, now this is me filling in some blanks for you, because we always stay at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house when we come this way. So they're watching it. As soon as they hear that we are there, they're coming after us. And we're not going to have much lead time. Think about this. How fast can you walk a mile and a half? 20 minutes, if you're really in a hurry. 25 minutes, if you've got your shoulder down and moving pretty fast. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a half hour. And if you're a garrison of Roman soldiers and you hear that Jesus is in Bethany and you need to close the gap in a mile and a half, you're probably going to do it fast. But more than likely, there was a garrison of soldiers already in Bethany waiting for him to come back to the place that he always came to. And the disciples are saying, they just tried to kill us. You want to go back? And with that, Jesus gives them this beautiful cryptic message. Verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now we go from John chapter 10 where Jesus answers the Pharisees' questions very plainly to Jesus now speaking with a cryptic tone and even cryptic words. In essence, this is what he was saying. If you look at this as the world looks at it, yep. You ought to be afraid. But you have the light in you. I am with you. There's no reason to be afraid. It's all right. We've already escaped. Don't worry about it, he's saying. It's almost as if Jesus is sharing with them the truth of Psalm 27. David wrote these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And David goes on to say, my enemies have no power over me because the Lord is my light. Jesus wanted them to understand the exact same thing. So he had taken them to Qumran. They felt safe. He took them south. They got a little more worried, but they had a 20-mile buffer zone, although the escape route was somewhat questionable. But now he says, let's walk right back into it because Lazarus needs us. Because Lazarus needs us. And if you remember back in verse 4, He said, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's what this was all about. The Son of God was about to be glorified and he desperately wanted them to see with spiritual eyes. And then Jesus gets word that Lazarus had died. Apparently the disciples didn't get the same message. And maybe that's because Jesus didn't get it from a messenger. He got it from the Lord, from the Spirit. But however it happened, Jesus knew it and the disciples didn't. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. They're looking with with worldly eyes again. Now put it in the right context. Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, he'll get better. We don't need to go. 
We do not need to go. Mary is there. Martha is there. They've got orange juice and chicken noodle soup. He's going to get better. He's just sick. Let's not go. Bethany is a bad, bad place. Let's not go. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, verse 13. They thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, I love this, Lazarus has died. So they needed to catch up. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, do you understand why Thomas said what he did? Yeah, Lazarus died. And if we go back there, so will we. You want to go back to Bethany, Lord? They just tried to kill you there, and we were with you, and we are collateral damage. And if we go back to Bethany, we are all going to die. Do you realize that, Lord? Do you realize that? We're all going to die. We might, fine, let's go. We will die with Lazarus. If that's what you want, let's go. We will die with Lazarus. That's what he was saying. You know, really, I would guess that most of the apostles were thinking that. But Thomas was the one bold enough to say it. Thomas was the one bold enough to share it. We know Thomas wrestles with skepticism. We know that Thomas wrestles with doubt. We know other things about Thomas, like the Bible just said, his name means twin. Who was his twin? In all your study of the Bible, who was Thomas's twin? The Bible never tells us. Not once. I love the fact that Warren Wiersbe teaches it this way. This is good stuff. He said, the Bible never tells us who Thomas's twin is because we could easily be his twin. That's, that's pretty good. Because we could easily be his twin. Lord, you want to do what? You want me to do what? All I can do is see this with worldly eyes. Well, God is always wanting us to see with spiritual eyes so that we might understand what he's doing and push past our skepticism, push past our doubt so that we can trust him no matter what. And when we do, we can experience miracles, dramatic miracles. So here Jesus has already said, I'm glad that he has died and I'm glad that I wasn't with him because it's about to open your eyes and I would offer to you not only theirs but ours as well. Because what happens next is truly remarkable. It's powerful teaching. Always remember this, in the midst of any miracle, there is powerful teaching. You look for it. There is always powerful teaching. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now let's just back up a little bit. Bible just says that Bethany is about two miles away. Some people would tell you it's a mile and a half. There's a whole bunch of Jews that had come there to be with Martha and Mary because they had known that Lazarus had died. Same thing that Jesus knew, but he knew it through the Spirit. And so now he's on his way. And when all those Jews heard that Jesus was coming, how much of a secret do you believe it was? It wasn't. It wasn't. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. The heading in my Bible over that section is, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's what Jesus was teaching. And Martha is the only one present. Maybe the disciples are around there too. But Martha is the main audience of it. And Jesus lays the whole thing out. This is who I am. And then he follows it with a question. Do you believe? And Martha had to answer. She's now confronted with the greatest choice of humanity. Do you believe? And if you do then you'll see it and you will experience it. And if you don't, okay. Do you believe? And Martha said, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That is the great confession. That is the great confession. Now watch what happens. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They had no idea what they were really saying. Jesus was weeping because people were seeing things only as the world saw it. And they could not see anything greater than the moment that they were in. And they could not see Jesus any different than the healer of the sick, not understanding that he came not to heal a sick man, but to raise a dead man and give us an illustration of what he would do for all mankind. That's what was going on here. That's what was going on here. So Jesus wept. But then he went to that grave. And you know what happens next, but it's so good we need to read it. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And right there, she has a Thomas moment. She had already made her good confession and declaration that she believed. But now as they stand in front of the tomb, she says, but Lord, it's going to smell pretty bad. Are you sure you want us to roll this away? He's been in there four days. It's a Thomas moment. That's why Warren Wiersbe would teach that we don't know Thomas's twin because we could all be his twin. Martha's having a Thomas moment. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Hold on, Martha, hold on. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Isn't that a great part of the story? 
Deanie was just telling me before the service started that he was listening to Alistair Begg preach on this this last week. And Alistair made this statement, that Jesus had to call Lazarus by name because if he would have just said, come out or come forth, a whole bunch of people would have been coming out. So he said, Lazarus, come out or come forth. Just one. Everybody else stay in there. Just one. And Lazarus came out. The resurrection of the dead took place. But do you know what else happened? The ball started rolling for Jesus' crucifixion. When he went back to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, he did so at great cost, his own life. When he went back into that region, he knew exactly what he was doing. The disciples, when they said to him, Lord, they just tried to kill you. Do you want to go back there again? They were thinking of their own safety, and so was Jesus when he said yes. But it wasn't their immediate safety that he was concerned with. It was their eternal safety. Yes, we'll go back. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he did so at the cost of his own life. And he did it for us. Just a couple weeks after this, the Roman soldiers, they'll get him. They won't hunt him down to find him. He'll ride a donkey right into their midst. And then he'll go to a public place called the Garden of Gethsemane and they will come there and they will arrest him not because they were such wonderful detectives and found him where he was at in the region of Qumran up in the caves or 20 miles south near the Egyptian border. None of that. He was right there in their midst and he came back willingly and it was to save the life of his friend and to illustrate what he would do for all of us because my friends no matter what you believe at some point we all wrestle with a condition that we just heard a few minutes ago referred to as all dead it is all dead it's not mostly dead it is all dead don't believe me believe the bible romans chapter 3 lays it out for us you've heard this before a number of different times as well but listen again For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just three chapters later in chapter 6, verse 23, we learn this. For the wages of that sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are all dead in our sins. And I don't mean all dead like all of us. I mean completely dead. But Jesus came to raise the dead to life. And not just in the moment but for eternity and to set us free. That's the miracle of resurrection, but it cost Jesus everything. The coolest part about that cost is how calculatedly, willingly he paid it. He went back to Bethany on purpose, on purpose. And when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, and set him free, he showed us exactly what he plans to do for us. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Earlier in John chapter 5 verse 21, Jesus would say this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And that's to all that will call on his name. That's what Jesus does for us. It's the greatest miracle ever. The last miracle, public miracle of Jesus before the cross, 
was a demonstration of what he was going to do on the cross and through the cross and through the empty tomb. Not just for Lazarus, but for all of us. Because like he loved Lazarus, he loves us. And so we have to determine what we believe. Just like Martha. Just like Martha. And once we do, we may very well find ourselves in a situation where we can understand the truth of a statement like this. We will see that true faith trusts the promises of God and releases God's power unto resurrection, but to unto, or but unto many other miracles in our life as well. When God breaks through the natural realm to perform the supernatural that he will be glorified, there's no end to what he'll do for us. Literally, no end. No end. Because the greatest miracle given to us is eternal life. I want to remind you of the story that we were reading earlier of Walter Williams' resurrection, if you will. Let me just join back up with the story where we left off. But the bottom line, Mr. Howard insisted, is it's a miracle. In recounting this modern miracle, the author touched upon another quirk in the death business. Across the world, procedures and personnel for declaring death can vary. In the UK, coroners like Mr. Howard cannot declare death, but in the US, the coroner can decide. Mr. Howard had 22 years' experience as county coroner, and about two weeks later, when Mr. Williams died for good, all dead, it was Mr. Howard who again declared him dead. Every case I do is a learning experience, said Mr. Howard. When asked what he had learned from this one, he replied that miracles can happen. Fortunately, Mr. Williams' family seemed to agree. It was a two-week miracle for me, and I enjoyed every minute of it, said the now truly dead man's nephew, Eddie Hester. I wonder what Martha and Mary would have said about the miracle of Lazarus. We don't know how long he lived after that, but we know he died. He died. Lazarus had to die again. The coroner had to declare him dead. He had to go back into the tomb. But then Jesus had already been crucified. So resurrection happened right away. He went instantly into the presence of the Lord after that. That's pretty cool. Mary and Martha would have said it was a two-year miracle for us, 10-year miracle for us, 15-year miracle for us. But by that point, they understood this miracle isn't over. We will be with Jesus forever because he came back to raise our brother and us and us. You find yourself in that story because Jesus found you in that story. You find yourself in that miracle because Jesus found you in that miracle. He went back knowing what would happen. At great risk of the cross, Jesus went back. Nothing is impossible with God even what we would logically say no one would do, Jesus did for us. And he found you in that miracle.